This is Let's Break Good, the podcast where we never settle for good enough. I'm your host, Joe Agoda, and today on the podcast, we have Chelsea Bachi. Chelsea is the Vice President of Talent, Programs, and Employee Engagement at the nonprofit Kiva, an organization that to date has provided help to millions of people in over 75 countries around the world. Chelsea was part of the founding team at Kiva in 2005, and for the past 14 years has held various roles at the organization. Today, her main focus at Kiva is on building a dynamic culture internally. Chelsea has experiences in social impact around the world, from Southeast Asia to South Africa. Today, she will be sharing with us about her professional journey, the development of Kiva, and what it takes to sustain in the nonprofit world. Welcome, Chelsea. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Joe. I'm happy to be here. I want to break free. So to start, um, I want to ask you to tell us about a meaningful volunteering experience that you've had and why it was so significant to you. Mm. You know, I've had a few really powerful volunteer experiences in my life, and I'm, I'm grateful for all of them. But the most, I would say the most life-changing by far was my time in Cape Horn, South Africa, because it was really such a pivotal moment for me in my life. Um I was there volunteering as an aide to a social worker in a children's center focused on care for HIV positive children. And I lived and worked in a township called Kailicha, which has actually 1.2 million people living in extreme poverty. Uh, my role was to accompany this, this social worker on house visits to determine whether the families raising their hands to foster these children were physically and, and mentally and emotionally stable and able to administer the antiretroviral treatments uh, responsibly to care for these children. And, you know, I witnessed some terrible things on those house visits. Um, it was a very eye-opening experience for me. Um, I remember feeling really helpless, like the problem was just too massive. Uh, we often refer to that actually at Kiva as, as passion collapse. And I've heard other organizations refer to this as well, where there's just too much of it and nothing, you know, I can or could do would really make a big enough difference. So sometimes it becomes just easier for us to tune that stuff out. Um, we see that happen all the time, especially when, you know, with so much heartache in the world today. I think for me back in 2005, those really profound experiences stayed with me and I, I saw the world through a new lens. So it was actually in South Africa that I learned about the concept of microfinance for the very first time. And I really gravitated towards the idea um, there were local women working with me at the center who had taken out small loans from a local pastor to start up small businesses in the community. It was, you know, microfinance almost at the most grassroots level, um, just 10 to $15 loans. And what really struck me was how proud these women were. Um, a couple examples. One had bought a, a hairdryer and started her own salon in her off hours. Um, it was fun to see her, you know, women would come from all parts of the community to, to get their hair done and she would set up shop kind of near the, the children's center. And another woman set up a banana stand next to our center and eventually started serving the community during her lunch hour and making sandwiches eventually and taking out subsequent loans for a bit more from, from this, local, um, this local pastor. So it was just a really 
interesting experience for me to see that. I had never studied microfinance in school and um, to see it happening at that level was was really exciting. So I came back actually from that volunteer experience and reconnected with an old friend from high school, Matt Flannery. And it was, uh, he's, he's Kiva's founder. Um, and it was right around the time that he and Jessica Jackley, um, also co-founder of Kiva, were founding the organization. And it, you know, with my newfound interest in microfinance, I was so excited and, and they invited me to help get things off the ground. And so we started meeting in cafes in the Mission District of San Francisco. And I was also applying to graduate school at the time and studying to take the GRE. But my excitement for Kiva just really grew by the day. Um, and I kept meeting with them and the rest is history. That was in 2005. <laughs> Great. I like that you've pointed out volunteering is a way to give, but just as much it's a way to mm. learn, to connect with people, to get things in return, like a real world classroom that you can't get anywhere else. So it's a two-way street. I, I really agree with that about volunteering. And you've, you've mentioned Kiva now. And, you know, while volunteering is a powerful way where you kind of give away your time for free, Kiva, the organization you helped found, takes a different approach to making that difference in the world. And you've already sort of hinted at that. So maybe you can tell our audience, some who may or may not have heard of Kiva before, a bit about what the organization does and any more of that origin story that you can give us. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I love what you what you just said. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, Kiva is a, so it's a nonprofit with a mission to expand financial access to help underserved communities thrive. That's our mission statement. And Kiva leverages the power of the internet um, and a global network of partner organizations. So these are organizations, you know, everything from a microfinance institution to an NGO, social enterprise, etc. And we leverage the, this, the technology and these partner organizations so people can make a loan as little as $25 to help create opportunity for someone around the world. So you can go into kiva.org and, and browse loan requests from entrepreneurs around the, the globe by things like religion or gender, business description, and then you choose who to lend to. So you know, one of the things that, that we talk about so much is that we believe in providing safe, affordable capital, access to, to that capital, to those in need. Um, and it really helps people create better lives for themselves and their families. So that was kind of a, a vital belief statement for us in those early days. And lending through Kiva allows your money to go further than making just a one-time donation. So there's that distinction between loan and donation that I think is so important and differentiates Kiva from from so many other organizations out there. And then when your loan is repaid, you can either withdraw the money or make another loan um, or make a a donation to Kiva. And the same funds can be reloaned over and over and over again. So the impact multiplies. And and often we say Kiva allows anyone to be a mini Bill Gates philanthropist for as low as $25. (laughs) Our founder said that, and I I always thought that was really fun. So I don't know, some people might have heard, you know, if you've ever heard the, um, the, the statement, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Um, Kiva has a slightly different spin on this because we say that borrowers, Kiva borrowers already know how to fish. They just need a loan to buy a net and we want to unlock that potential for them. Love that. I love that. And, and when you were starting up, that was a critical decision that obviously 
the more traditional, you know, maybe there's a lot of crowdsourcing, you know, donations going on, but you wanted to do it differently. You want to do these micro loans. Where did you think that decision came from? Was it like from the very beginning? Was it like, okay, we're going to do micro loans or did that evolve as you were developing? Oh, it's such a good question. No, you know, that was a pretty early decision, actually. In 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 2004, Matt and Jessica were on a trip in East Africa, and Matt was a software engineer at TiVo at the time, and Jessica was volunteering her and her time at an organization called Village Enterprise Fund, and they were to be married, and they were meeting all these borrowers, these 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 wonderful potential borrowers, but these wonderful people in um, this part of Uganda, Tororo, Uganda, and. They had these big ideas, big dreams, but they didn't have that access to capital. And so it was then, it was actually that early, believe it or not, that they started to think through this concept of, you know, what if we could give them this hand up, but not a hand out? What would happen? Would they repay? Um, you know, would, would people come together to, to fund their dream? And that's that's kind of the very, very early on inception of, of where Kiva began. And then I joined them in 2005, um, about you know eight or nine months later after that that trip. And the real problem statement we were trying to solve for is that you know there are more than 2.5 billion people in the world without access to capital. It's just massive. And um, you know people want to give, but they want to know where their money is going and what it would be used for. And so many, you know. Um, online charity options at the time really didn't give you that personal feel. So you could write a check um, and, you know, send money in, in one direction, but you wouldn't really get there. There wasn't a feedback loop. And so we've created Kiva for people who really wanted to make a difference, but they don't want to be separated from the human experience of it all. Was there any pushback? Because I know Kiva is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit organization. In those early days, though, did you have a have a hard time explaining the concept to donors and other folks? Like, was there any like, why poor people? Why would you do a loan that's so rude? Or um, was the reception also, did people have the same understanding like you did? Or did, was it kind of, were there challenges selling that early on? We really did. We, we, we had a lot of challenge in that regard. Actually, one of my responsibilities very early on in the organization was to travel about 50% of my time. And I was traveling to conferences all over the world and sitting on panels and trying to pitch the concept of Kiva. And, you know, it was at a time when the world was just so different. I mean, the term crowdfunding didn't even exist. People weren't talking about that concept. And microfinance, you know, thankfully, Mohammed Yunus had, had brought so much attention when he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in the industry. And um, so there was a lot of attention on the idea, but the use of like the, the leveraging technology, that piece that Kiva brought and using, you know, an online system to connect people was something that people were just very, very, um, you know, confused by. We had a lot of naysayers, every, everyone from, you know, lawyers to regulators, to people, uh, friends and family, to just our community. Uh, folks in the industry who were just asking a lot of questions about the loan model. And there was a lot of skepticism out there about whether people would actually repay, um, especially if they knew where the money was coming from. So at that point, you know, the money was coming, you know, we were raising funds from uh, Americans and kind of sending money 
you know, out to other countries, mostly developing countries. And now on Kiva, that's very different. I mean, 14 years later, we see money flowing in all different directions. And that's really exciting. That was a dream for us early on. And it's it's wonderful to see that. But yes, there were there was a lot of skepticism back then. And, and how do you think <laughs> yeah. you broke through it? How did you get, you know, change minds? Was there a story? Was there something that happened that started to get people more on board with it? You know, honestly, I think we just had to prove out the concept. Um, you know, it was a couple early breaks where we got, you know, we grew our user base and we had enough activity on the site where I think those skeptics saw that the model was working and the repayments were being made. And now, I mean, the proof point for the last 14 years has really been in that repayment rate. I mean, we have about a 98% repayment rate on Kiva now. So it's just, it's wildly profound to see that people really do um, believe in, in doing the right thing and that's repaying those loans. And we have this wonderful incentive structure built in where people can take out subsequent loans for more, typically through other partners, if if they've been able to repay um, their previous loans, and you know, we we trust that people were were driven in the right way, and we've seen that to be true. So sounds like a lot, a lot of resilience, and that's what I think any nonprofit startup or anyone who's going into um, purpose work needs to have that resilience and that belief of the concept, but also that people will not believe in it until you've proven, not just you're saying it, but you've done it and you show that. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, a lot of, um, energy that you all put there to make sure that you could get to that point and keep it going. And for you, you were actually coming to Kiva from a corporate job at Barclays. Uh, so what was that like going from the corporate sector to a social enterprise startup, uh, what in the first place kind of motivated you to make that decision? And what was that like, that transition, like going from a corporate setting to a nonprofit setting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, leaving Barclays to found Kiva was, was a really big shift. Um, when I think back on it, it just seems so wild, but it happened organically and it just felt so natural at the time. So I'd been working for, you know, obviously a very big company, Barclays Global Investors, um, helping senior execs hire top talent. So I was learning a ton about the industry, but I always felt a bit disconnected from the corporate culture. And I was there for many years. And when I had the opportunity to travel abroad with my sister, I jumped at it. We had always talked about wanting to to do that. So we packed our bags and we set off for a six-month round-the-world backpacking trip um, in Southeast Asia. That's where we began. But we didn't know then that we'd be in Thailand when the tsunami hit in 2004. And ultimately had the incredible opportunity to volunteer in those relief efforts, extending our time there by about four months. And so that breaking away from Barclays to, to go do something so incredibly different really was a huge part of my transition. And, you know, to witness families being torn apart and the pure, you know, devastation that happens with natural disasters of, of this sort of magnitude, it changed the way that I viewed um, humankind, really. Um, as devastating as this the disaster was, people really were coming together in a way that I'll never forget. And that was a pivotal moment for me because I saw volunteers from all over the world coming to do good and um, to take on this massive challenge together. And it just blew my mind. And it was something so different than anything I'd ever experienced in my life, especially working in a corporate setting. Um, They weren't letting people at that time in the affected areas right after the tsunami. So my sister and I traveled to Bangkok 
And we ended up volunteering with the Thai Red Cross for those months. And we gave blood and um, volunteered for odd jobs, anything they would give us, really. Um, we help with blood donations. We help sort through boxes of donated clothes and supplies, um, help to pack up trucks full of food and water for the victims and their families. It was really incredible. And um, it formed my belief that people were truly good in nature. That kind of goes back to what we were just talking about um, with Kiva. But, you know, returning home from that experience, I knew that I needed to change career paths. I just knew that 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 I wasn't going to go back to do what I was doing. I just didn't know how or what that next step was going to be. So I I delayed um, my decision and I found another volunteer opportunity in South Africa. And that's the, what I had already shared with you, the, the experience that kind of turned me on to microfinance ultimately. Yeah, it's a suggestion I give anyone who's thinking is a career and purpose for me, do I want to work in social good and nonprofits? I say the first thing you need to go is get to the forefront, get to the front line, volunteer, take a small job because that will give you the like experience to know, is this for me? And like you said, I had the same thing. I did a travel, I did a volunteer, I came back and I went to the same, you know, places with my friends that I used to go and I just didn't feel the same. I had, you know, went back to my job, I didn't feel the same and I knew what direction I wanted to go. Uh, but I want to ask a question because there may be some other people who are sitting maybe in some corporate jobs thinking about this, but what they might be worried about is money. Um, you know, did you ever have like regrets or anything thinking about, well, all the money I could have made in the private sector, should I have stayed? Or are there maybe other perks in the nonprofit and the work you have done that have offset that or helped you not not think about that too much? And you know, that's something I've thought about, I've thought a lot about over the course of, of, of my career. You know, I yeah, I was volunteering for many months at the start of Kiva before we ever received our first funding to to get to get proper payment. Um, and and then once we did, you know, I was I've been on a nonprofit salary all these years. So, you know, one thing I I think about quite often is just how much the world is changing. And I think that, you know, you don't have to be a martyr to do good. I think that the world of nonprofit is, is um, so incredibly important. And I think that there are incredible opportunities out there. And I think that you can find ways to be paid, you know, paid competitively and still feel like you're making a significant difference. Um, your question about, you know, have I ever had regret? <laughs> I think, no, because I'm so proud of what we've accomplished. So I I can't even really entertain that idea because I would never trade it in for the world. But I do find myself, you know, now at this point in my life, um, you know, I'm, I don't have the savings that I had once envisioned when I was younger. I, I you know, have made life choices um, that have me here, but, you know, I haven't been able to buy property yet in my life. That's something that I, I would love to do someday. And I'm working towards that, but it's definitely taking longer than many of my friends who graduated college, took very different kinds of, of jobs and different career paths. But, you know, they often, they love my work. They get a kick out of talking about um, my work with Kiva and I've just so enjoyed being able to share in the joy with my community and friends and family. And so it really goes both ways. It's been a wildly, um, you know, wonderful experience for me. And I, I don't regret it, but it, but I have had to make sacrifices in my life for it. I appreciate that as a real answer. There's a lot in that that I 100% agree with. Um, you know, well, number one, that I believe that 
the nonprofit world. We need to strike out some righteousness in that like every, you know, I think there's a sense sometimes that like a dollar spent on salaries, not a dollar spent on the people we're trying to help. But for me, well, how are you going to attract the best talent to solve the toughest problems if you don't pay people their value? And why should someone in a corporation maybe making a widget be paid the same or more of someone who's out saving a life? Um, so that's sort of how I come about it. Um, and But it's also the fact is that those in the corporate world the, where we live today, they are going to get ahead. They are going to have the salary that allows them to, like you said, buy the property and do certain things. But they're the same ones that come to me and also want to know you know, see what I'm doing and, and how they can help and what they can do. And especially as they get a little bit further into it, uh, their, their careers, they said, well, what is my career about? What's the purpose? And then they're coming back to me. So I really appreciated your, your kind of real answer there. Uh, and I also know that you made a lot of tough decisions early on. And I read that you got into your dream graduate school early on too, when Kiva and Kiva hadn't hit big yet, you know, now it's a big name, but at the time it wasn't. And you decided to defer your graduate school, which was your dream school. I mean, how did you do that? Mm, oh my goodness. Yeah, that was, that was a moment in time. You know, I often reflect on what a crossroads that was in my life. You're right. So it was, it was right around the time it was the, the year to follow Kiva's founding. And I had been, like I mentioned, applying for the GRE and, and had my, my, you know, mindset on this idea of going back to graduate school for international development and social work, especially coming from Southeast Asia and my time in Africa, it just felt like the right, the right next step for me professionally and that it was going to unlock so many opportunities for me. And I bet you that would have been true. Had I taken that path, absolutely. A degree like that could, could bring some incredible things. Um, I was really struggling because Kiva was something I just believed in so deeply. And I, I felt like there was so much potential, but like you said, it hadn't really unlocked. Things hadn't hit yet. And so it wasn't a proven thing and it wasn't the safe bet for sure. And I was living in San Francisco, which is incredibly expensive. And I remember my mom at the time in my life, I was probably in tears and having a real moment of panic. And I remember my mom saying, okay, Chelsea, Try and put yourself out a few years in either direction. You've chosen each path and then look back on the other path. What do you see? And I went through the exercise and actually it's something I've done a number of my time of, of times in my life. It's, it's, it's a really interesting exercise, but I pictured myself sitting in the library in New York and, you know, writing a paper, studying for a test and my stress levels were high and I got online, I took a break, and I read about Kiva, and my heart sank. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't miss out on this opportunity. I've got to see this through. School will be there. I'll go back. And so I deferred for one year, and my plan all along was to go back I thought that year later. And then that in that year, we had a segment on Frontline that aired, and things really took off. Um, our user base tripled, and um, I just knew that, that that we had kind of, you know, really been able to unlock something. And so I, I let go ultimately of my that that year deferral the second time around, and have have never been back. Yeah, yeah. And, and the things that Kiva has done, and we're going to get into that, have really amazing. And you've got the front row seat, and you've been there from the start. I guess maybe where I want to start, go to now as we kind of look at this trajectory of the things that Kiva accomplished and where it's gone to today, 
when I look at it, the huge the huge part of it is its community and and the development of its community, both its people who are giving the loans and people who are receiving the loans. Um, and around that is all kinds of meaningful engagement with the Kiva staff, with its partners, with its lenders, with its other sponsors. It's really that kind of engagement is critical to any nonprofit. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could share with us anything you've learned by building Kiva's community, both online and offline. Mm, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the community development aspect has been such a, an interesting part of this journey. Um, you know, we have we have a fantastic support network. So it, it, it might be helpful just to to kind of paint the picture a little bit more. I think a lot of people are are not aware of just what an incredible uh, global uh, support network Kiva has to make our work possible. But one of the things that I'm most proud of in my time with Kiva is helping, as you mentioned, to grow our online and offline communities. And so in addition to our global base of, of lenders who are lending on Kiva to, in support of these borrowers, we have over seven, uh, 100 staff now in, in a few different offices around the world and over 500 volunteers who donate their time to, you know, edit, review, and translate the loan profiles before they go live on our site, for example. And this program always just blows me away. And it's been amazing to see this online community grow over the years pretty organically. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention, talk to that in a minute. But, uh, you know, other volunteers are helping to build our infrastructure. They're interning in our offices. Um, they're translating loans, like I mentioned on the website. They're serving as fellows in uh, many of the developing countries in which we work and, you know, traveling to the field for months at a time for Kiva. So it's just an incredible show of, of support and um, volunteerism, really. And so one of the things that, that I've really learned, I, I'd say, is just how important it is to consistently nurture your communities, um, both online and offline, and never take your supporters for granted. So you know, we've learned this the hard way, as you do many things in life. <laughs> um, and, you know, our, our primary channel, I would say, for communicating with lenders, for example, is via email. And, you know, until we had a, a strong email system to be able to, to effectively communicate, you know, even that form of communication was really a challenge for us. And we've learned the hard way when it comes to nurturing our, our offline communities, because that's just really, really difficult to do in scale. You know, when Kiva was was younger and we were, you know, growing quickly and, you know, our number one driver of, of new folks to the site was uh, word of mouth. A big effort um, by the organization at that time was to pull people together in their communities offline so that they could share in their Kiva experience together and share who they'd chosen to support. And we had so much fun hosting these events and it was such a wonderful show of support. And then, of course, as we grow and we start to double down on figuring out how to scale, that sort of um, offline community building just wasn't going to be effective for us. And so we've really shifted our, our focus to more online channels. And so, you know, email, like I mentioned, and twice a month, we do a query of anyone in our database, for example, who has $25 sitting in their account. So as loans are repaid by borrowers, that money is returned to our lenders. And so we remind them to use those funds to lend to another entrepreneur, constantly nurturing um, those relationships and coming back to them and reminding them that, that they can participate. We also try to keep our lenders posted with 
stories from the field and, and updates on promotions, but more importantly, stories of the people that they've chosen to support. And we've really found that that sort of thing is, is what goes most far. I think our blog and social media channels um, help with that sort of thing. And, you know, bringing to life those personal stories and how Kiva loans are changing lives is really the piece that we hear from folks all the time that they want more of. And so we try to do, you know, share those inspiring stories through those channels, um, you know, but it, it takes constant nurturing um, to draw those people back in. And especially because the world is changing and there's so much competition out there. There, you know, people are inundated. We're all inundated every day with so many opportunities to do good online, especially. And, um, you know, Kiva's constantly thinking through ways to, that we can try and differentiate ourselves. And so those personal stories are one really great way to do that. I will mention one last thing that just came to mind. Another successful strategy for us, and I would say this is online and offline, for growing our community um, has been engaging corporate partners or you know organizations like PayPal or Google or HP, where they host employee engagement campaigns and they can provide free trial credits, so $25 credits to their employees to make a Kiva loan. And it's been so fun because we hear stories about how bonding it can be. You know, we, we heard at, at PayPal that they, at the start of meetings, have kind of created a culture where they'll share uh, a story about someone that they recently uh, supported. And we love that. I mean, that's just, we live for that sort of thing at Kiva. So that's fun for us. Yeah. No, sparking those kind of meaningful conversations and relationships and, you know, when it's online, but you can, you're not doing it alone. That's a hard thing to, to accomplish is, you know, because usually online is a individualized thing, but then to, you know, not be able to organize these community gatherings, but somehow the experience bringing people together to talk about it. That's definitely um, really interesting. And I'm wondering what you also think makes the Kiva community unique because you're doing the micro loans instead of like straight donations, do you think it attracts a different type of person, a different mindset, like a personality type? Mm, that's a great question. You know, one of our biggest challenges at Kiva has been over the years trying to figure out who in the world our demographic actually is because Kiva appeals to so many people. So it's a wonderful problem to have, but it's been a bit tricky for us. So we have a lot of folks who think of Kiva more like a charity where they think of that $25 do, you know, loan more like a donation. They don't ever intend to withdraw those funds. And then we have a lot of people who actually love Kiva um, you know, over maybe some other online charitable options because they feel like it's a social investment. They feel like they're going to get that money back and they'd rather have their money sit in Kiva and do good versus sitting in B of A and not doing anything at all. Um, so it, it kind of spans a, a breadth of, of folks. Yeah. It's both an opportunity and a challenge that there's not like a single issue thing that, you know, people rally around like some other causes. Uh, so you have a diverse um, group of folks that you have to, you know, cater to a little bit differently. So I bet that's a challenge, but, you know, it's also an opportunity. Um, what about on the recipient side, like those who are receiving the loans? Uh, it's not a handout. They have to repay it. Do you think that changes, you know, that kind of, that community as well? Yeah, I mean, we have so many different loan types now. So we started out just focusing on small business loans um, and, you know, things like, you know, 
um, you know, a clothing shop or a taqueria or something like that. But then now we have student loans on Kiva. We have, you know, there's solar. You can provide opportunities, agriculture. There are so many different loan sectors and, and different types of, of products that appeal to, to different folks. And so we've seen, you know, a really vast, um, you know, array of borrowers on the borrower side as well. So many different kinds of people are benefiting um, from Kiva. But there's like, is one commonality among them, which is a lot of them repay. Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah you, I mean, is there anything that you do to, to, you know, encourage that or is there vetting? Like, how do you achieve that kind of number? There is, there is a great deal of vetting. You know, we, we have a pretty thorough due diligence process at Kiva, but that due diligence is mostly done on our partner organizations. So before we allow an organization to post up profiles of their borrowers on Kiva, we would put them through a rigorous due diligence process and think through risk management um, and our plan to address any sort of potential complications down the line. And our team is is incredible in, in spending a lot of time on that sort of thing before we onboard partners. So then we really leave it, you know, once that trust is there and we feel good about the partnership, then we really um, defer the decision making on the individual level to that partner organization. So they are choosing the individuals who they want to uh, gain support. Okay, so these are your field partners, yeah. right? I think uh, that Kiva references them as. So you're not making all these like individual direct donations. You have a field partner that you've heavily vetted who is then doing their own vetting to select people who can get the That's the loans. exactly right. Exactly. Right. Okay, got it. Well, it's a model that's obviously had wild success. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, Kiva's had some really amazing moments. And one of them that I think any nonprofit would be jealous of or any cause would be coming one of Oprah's favorite things, not only a favorite thing, an ultimate favorite thing. Um, so how did it happen? How did you get on Oprah's radar? What was that like? Mm, yeah, what a moment. Um, that was a pivotal time in Kiva's history, no doubt. So we 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 hit the you know publicity jackpot, if you will, in September of 07. Um, when Oprah attracted really a tidal wave of interest from middle America. I mean, her viewership is is a different base than what we had been um, seen as our early adopters who were joining us in Kiva's very early years. So, you know, overnight, our user, ba- our user base quadrupled. Um, demand was so high, just to kind of paint the picture of what this was like for Kiva, the, the day that the episode aired where every loan on the site was was fulfilled, essentially, and we ran out of loans. So that was stressful. Oh, my um, gosh. And again, a great problem to have, right? I mean, I remember even saying yeah. that at the time, like, this is so exciting. And oh, my gosh, how in the world are we going to get through this? What are we going to do? You know, what a missed opportunity if we if we can't take advantage of, of all that incredible support. So lenders were just you know, new lenders, I should say Oprah viewers at that time, were snapping up those loans almost as fast as our field partners could add new loan profiles of borrowers. So yeah, like I said, it was both exciting and wildly stressful. And we had to scramble to onboard new partners really fast to build, you know, and that's taking into consideration that due diligence process and trying to figure out how we could scale, Mm -hmm. but scale safely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But how does it happen? Does Oprah like 
how much heads up did you have? Did she just like, does Oprah call? Does Oprah's people call? You have a week or how long did you have before you knew? And then it happened. We had been working with their team for, mm, I'm going to say months, not even just weeks. So they have so many producers and every story is vetted so many times. There were a lot of different rounds. They sent somebody out to the office to, to physically vet our space and, and our team we worked with the producers by giving them a lot of different storylines. That was something that, that I really remember and that was striking about that that time. So, you know, if there was something they weren't sure of, they wouldn't move forward until it made sense to them. So I think giving them a lot of options um, that they had to work with was really worked in our favor, honestly. And I think it's one of the reasons that we were lucky enough to be featured a second time in 2010, which, which is so heard of. And um, I think because we had kind of pitched so many different angles, their team came back to us again and, and we went a different direction. And do you feel like you were more prepared the second time around? Because I didn't even realize that, that you were featured twice. Was the first one the favorite and then the ultimate favorite? Was that? Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> okay. Right. You know, were you ready for the ultimate favorite then? Did you feel more prepared that second time? No, I mean, get this. We we were. We thought we were prepared and our service crashed again. Our service <laughs> crashed. We ran out of loans. The same thing happened. Obviously at a different scale three years later. So, you know, we, we made it work. We put up another splash page. We thanked everyone for coming. You know, we offered an optional donation. Um, so when lenders would hit the site, you know, they had something mm-hmm. to do. And that really worked in our favor as well because we got some incredible donations in during that time while we were kind of scrambling to get new loans posted. Yeah, these are, there's two lessons here. First, which I believe in, there's no such thing as like overnight success or luck. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of time that goes into something that may seem like it's just a three-minute, five-minute, however long segment it is. There's a lot that that goes into it. Um, so that, that's definitely you know something to take away. Um, I'm also actually following off of that. Then do you have any tips of what a social cause can do to make the most of an attention like that? You know, yeah. I mean, I, I think we, we also learned this the hard way, but, you know, those, those moments are so few and far between and they're hard to come by and it's not a sure thing. And so I would say if if and when that happens, you know, to, to be as prepared as possible and really set up to be able to take advantage of it. You know, if we could go back, we've often reflected on on the, the many, many things that we would do differently to really optimize for that success. But um yeah, it's. I, I wish I had a playbook <laughs> to share. <laughs> it's hard to have the the Oprah playbook, but I, I you really I love how you shared that story. Um, so I guess another kind of like question off of that. Um, this doesn't have to be Kiva specific because obviously there was a good problem that you had, which was that your service crashed, you ran out of loans. But do you think for a nonprofit there might be such a thing as too much good attention at once? Mm, what an interesting question. So I, I was you think of that, and my take on it is absolutely. Um, we've been starting to tell some stories on here of like what we call like you know doing good gone wrong, um, and a lot of it, some of it, not a lot, maybe some of it stems from too much media attention all at once, and it's like an Icarus thing a little bit. They fly so close to the sun so quickly, and then they burn out, or they over. That's when they start overlooking you know, things with their projects and they go full steam ahead. Something you said was like, um, how can we do, you know, scaling that is, you know, really informed and vetted. It has to be quick, but it's, you know, going to be something that we can sustain. Yeah. 
That um, makes a ton of sense to me. And and thank you for kind of, yeah, providing a bit more insight. I, I can, hearing you even just talk that through, there are absolutely moments in time where I think Kiva could have, was flying too close to the sun and could have easily burnt out. I think that, you know, possibly had we had the technology um, to, and the, the server, you know, strength to be able to bear those Oprah moments, I think that we would have been in a really, um, you know, unhealthy place as an organization because we probably would have been absorbing too much capital to effectively distribute in ways that felt safe and responsible. And so it was, it was good. It was kind of almost a forcing function for us to slow down. And it did really um, require that we think about that, that risk management process and our due diligence in a way that, you know, we, we doubled down on hiring. We brought in um, an expert from the mixmarket.org and she came with microfinance experience and you know, really helped us up-level the team and our thinking around how to more effectively engage in the industry. And that was all around that time where we knew it was like, okay, we're part of, we're part of a bigger ball game here all of a sudden. We need to really grow up and take this even more seriously than we were. And you all have definitely sustained and grown and taken that momentum from all that hard work, a little bit of Oprah magic. Um, and I think it's stunning when I read this that in 2017, Kiva surpassed, surpassed $1 billion in loans. And that's amazing. Um, for a nonprofit, right. For any organization. Uh, and, and, so I want to know what that achievement meant to the organization. Uh, so you can tell me on like a kind of a high level, what did that mean? How did it you know, feel to get there? But then maybe you can take us down to a few of your favorite stories, your favorite, you know, loans or stories of loans um, through the years that got to that 1 billion. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that. Yeah. I love that you brought that up. It's such a major milestone for us. Um, crossing 1 billion in loans just a couple years ago, actually, you know, especially was huge because at one point in time, we were hearing from countless people, like we talked about earlier, that, that believe this would never be possible. And so, you know, the concept of lending was crazy to so many and, you know, people would never repay. And so the idea that that we had been able to kind of um, prove that out at that scale was, was and still is so incredibly mind-blowing. Um, but more than the 1 billion number, I often think about all the people who have been connected and whose lives have been so enriched. And, you know, I love that Kiva for, for many people is their very first view of, of people in other countries. I think that it's such a, a wildly connecting uh, experience to be able to learn about folks in these other places. And, you know, we have a, a program at Kiva called Kiva U where we, it's about bringing Kiva into the classroom, classroom settings or on campuses as a teaching tool. And so we have teachers from all levels, elementary, junior high, high school, college campuses who are using Kiva to talk about things, you know, at a, at a more elementary level, maybe they're talking about the differences um, around the world and what it's like to live in a place like Kenya versus um, the United States. And then, of course, at the university level, they're using it um, when they're speaking about economics and tools that way. So it's just really been amazing to see how it's grown so much. And uh, you know, hopefully it creates admiration and respect um, versus pity and fear 
And that's something that we've really tried to bring into our brand messaging so much as, as we talk about people that we're supporting um, and wanting to, to think about them with, with that respect. Yeah. And so, yeah, you asked about borrower stories, I guess. Yes, please. Uh, yeah. So let's see. There are a couple that come to mind and these are, these are people that I've, I've met over the years. I've had an opportunity to, to travel to many of the places that Kiva works and it's, it's always inspiring to, to, you know, hear what people are doing with Kiva loans and how it's impacting their lives. So this is an, one example that comes to mind is, um, someone who is, is a more typical Kiva borrower story. We see it, um, this sort of thing, this sort of story on a number of different levels and in many, many different countries. But her, her name is Clenda, like Glenda, but Clenda. And she was 26 years old when I met her. She's a mother of two, um, spent time over the course at that time of, of about eight years working on building her farming business. And um, she employed one farmhand and, and sold the milk that her cow was producing at the local market. And so in order to increase her milk production and earn an extra income, um, Clenda needed a loan of, I think her loan was 300 US dollars on Kiva. And that was going to go towards purchasing a new dairy cow. And through Kiva's partner, Jehudi Kalimo in Kenya, um, Clenda received a loan that was funded by 12 uh, Kiva lenders worldwide. So those folks came together to, to pull that $300. And that extra income helped Clenda pay school fees for her children and ultimately increase her family's standard of living, which, again, this is a, a more typical Kiva story because we hear about, time and time again, we hear about the the, the profit of, of these Kiva loans going to pay school fees. And as production grew, she was able to purchase more dairy cows and her loan, you know, has been fully repaid and she's since taken out another loan to continue growing her business. So it's just a really wonderful story. I'd love to, I often think about, you know, going back to, to Kenya and having the opportunity to connect with mm. Linda again. Um, we especially love those stories, you know, about borrowers growing their income and graduating to a larger loan. And that's, that's what we saw in that case. Hey, well, thanks, thanks for sharing the stories. Uh, I, I love the, and that's what kind of gets you, keeps you going on a day to day basis is hearing uh, those types of stories. Um, and you just talked about so much that, you know, Kiva does these loans. There's an education component in the schools. There's obviously attracting all these individuals that, that end up helping to fund the loans. Uh, there's the technical platform that you have. Um, how do you generate the overhead? That's sort of a dirty word in nonprofit, but you know it's an important word, which is how do you keep the lights on and how do you make all these great things happen by generating enough to have those operating in overhead funds? I actually love that question because it's I'm, I'm, I'm you know I love this part of our model. Yeah, I'm happy to explain. So, so when you make a loan on Kiva um, right before checkout, there is an opportunity to make an optional donation on top of your loan. So let's say you, you're making a $25 loan and then a page pops up and it says, you know, here's an opportunity to support us and keep his operating costs. And it will usually default, I think, to about 10%, let's say, and people can swipe it out and put zero and some do. But we find that about 90% of new folks to Kiva choose to donate on top of their loan. And so that's covering about 70%, give or take, of Kiva's total operating costs. And we call those the, 
um, optional tips online. And then the rest, the, the 30% um, is made up by more traditional fundraising um, grants and, and foundations and that sort. So it's, it's, um, it's been an incredible thing to see. And then we actually stumbled upon that tip concept way back when, when Kiva was first featured on Frontline in 2006, our site crashed, and similar story. I've mentioned that a few times. <laughs> and we threw up a splash page on a whim that said, you know, help us pay our rent. We're working overtime to try and get more loans for you and get the site back up. And we raised about $250,000 wow. overnight. And wow. Oh, gosh, this is just huge. And we decided to incorporate that tip functionality more consistently through the flow. That's kind of like a, a surprise to me, actually, because I almost had assumed, oh, the type of donor or the person that goes to Kiva is someone who is kind of a, wants to be a savvy investor and get their money back um, and, and then give it again. And yet it sounds like those people end up also wanting to help the lender. Uh, because you're a nonprofit, and um, I mean, who knows why? But <laughs> it seems it works, and that's really again. Um, I think that's a really cool uh, surprise. It's almost like a little hybrid uh, model there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very true. All right, so that's kept you fueled the the over the years, and now today I've been reading that Kiva is still up to new things. Uh, they're still innovating. You're still trying new things, uh, new ways of creating impact. Uh, And there's a bunch you could talk about because I've I've seen them. Uh, Is there any particular one that you want to mention or that you're, uh, you know, specifically excited about you want to share with the audience? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I love that we're, we're constantly thinking about new innovative ways to, to kind of expand Kiva's impact. So I'm especially thrilled about a new initiative. You may have um, read about it recently that we're referring to at Kiva as Kiva Protocol, um, where we're using blockchain technology to benefit the unbanked in Sierra Leone. We're piloting this concept in Sierra Leone. And to illustrate what this means for for the people there, um, you know, just 20% of people, for example, in Sierra Leone have bank accounts where per capita, you know, the GDP is about $500 a year. And so with Kiva Protocol, uh, Sierra Leoneans will be able to sign up for bank accounts with a press of their thumbs, something that simple. And it will allow the, the West African country to create a universal credit bureau for the first time. So with its, you know, backers hoping it will spur lending by banks reluctant to loan to people without credit histories. So really building those credit histories for those people. And, you know, we have ambitions to replicate this work in, in other countries. Um, one way we've helped make sense of this for, for folks, um, both externally and internally, frankly, with our staff as well, is to explain that we're, we're not moving away from Kiva's core model, but rather introducing new initiatives like this that can really complement what it is we're trying to do. All right, Chelsea. Well, this is bringing us towards the end of our time together. And you shared so many stories and insights, and I'm very appreciative of it. So I want to give you an opportunity. And this is something that this season we're asking all our guests, uh, which is, is there, and this doesn't have anything, this doesn't have to do with Kiva necessarily. Is there any long held tradition or legacy system that people take as normal or as like a status quo that you would like to see broken? (laughs) 
It's such a such a good question, especially for the time in which we're living mm -hmm. right now. You know, I have to say, I have to say for me personally, and, mm -hmm. and it's good for me to tease out my personal experience from, from my work with Kiva, but but for me personally, what's top of mind so much these days is is gender bias and inequality. Um, you know, so many societies in the world have terrible gender bias, as we know, and it's one of the reasons that I was so drawn to work, you know, to Kiva's work really since day one. I think so many of the places in which we're looking to serve are really struggling with, with that gender bias. Um, you know, access to finance is such a huge challenge for female entrepreneurs around the world, and I think it's something like two-thirds of the world's unbanked population are women. And that makes for 1 billion women who do not have access to credit or financing options. And, you know, we know that financial inclusion is critical to gender equality, which is why more than, you know, 80% of Kiva loans are, are provided to women around the world. Um, so I, I would say that that is kind of top of mind for me. I would love to see that mm -hmm. broken. I think that that would be uh, life changing for, for all of us. And there's so much potential if we unlock the, 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 the power of women to kind of, um, you know, live a, a full and empowered life in a way that, that would, they're so deserving of. Yeah, and th there's obviously more attention on this, I think, topic over the last few years, or at least in my opinion. But I like that, you know, this is still something that needs to be broken. It hasn't been broken yet. Right. And, you know, I think we need to um, just understand that we're talking about tens, hundreds of years of legacy to be broken. You can't one social media campaign is not going to break it. Uh, one nonprofit initiative program is not going to break it. That's going to take a, a lot. Uh, so I think that is a uh, definitely a, a good one uh, that you've brought up for uh, us today at the end here. Mm, thank you. All right, Chelsea. Well, we have really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Um, other other ways that our listeners can get in touch with you or follow you on social media. Is there any way uh, for them to to check you out? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to, to chat with people and answer questions about our work or provide more insights around my personal story. And I'm happy to provide my email if that's appropriate. Um, it's chelsea at kiva.org. Great. Well, let's hope that I don't think I'm as big as Oprah. So I think your servers will be okay. Uh, giving out your email here. Uh, but Chelsea, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we've appreciated having you on the podcast. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Joe. Take care. But life still goes on. I can't get used to living without, living without, living without you by my side. I don't want to live alone. Hey, God knows. I want to give a lot of gratitude to everyone who made this episode possible. First of all, thanks to Chelsea and the team at Kiva for sharing their story and opening up so authentically to us. Also, Brooke Floor from Bevel PR, who helped in the preparations of the interview. I want to thank our producer, Simon Green, who you can find at iSimonG on Twitter, for always making us sound so good on the podcast. The recording today was done on the platform Zencaster, hosted with SoundCloud, and spread on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're interested to learn more about why free when not always be the best way to affect social change, check out our last episode, the season two premiere. So I'm not Oprah, 
but I can tell you about one of my ultimate favorite things that you can go out and do. Rate and review the podcast, wherever you listen. You can follow us on Twitter, at Let's Break Good. Subscribe to the podcast and visit letsbreakgood.com for more information or to get in touch with us. Until next time, I'm Joe Agoda, and you've been listening to the Let's Break Good podcast.